Alright, students. Today is our final lecture on Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019-2020. Lecture 39, introductory lecture on Dante's Paradiso Cantos 30 to 33, The Spirit of the Empire in Slides. 333 to 376. Let's remember where we were. We had just ascended from the Prima Mobile, the ninth circle of, or the ninth sphere of heaven. Recall that the Prima Mobile, all parts are uniform, space and time, the nature of the universe, both begin there, and it is also invisible. That is what it means for all parts to be uh, uniform. We then, upon entering into heaven, entered a sort of garden-like, or excuse me, the Empire Inn, entered a sort of garden-like place with a streaming river of light. And so we hear from Beatrice now, you will have to drink of this water before this thirst of yours is satisfied. Apparently, Dante has to drink from this river of light in order for him to see God as God would see God, or to see God as the angels and souls in heaven see God rather than as his human, uh, bound by human perception and human mortal parts, uh, mind has been seeing things. We've been seeing things in parts, now we're going to see uh, things as a whole. That's one of the major themes of the end of this poem. Two major themes to look out for. One, ineffability. Dante's inability to remember the things that he has uh, said. Recall the uh, beautiful quote that said, He forgot more in one moment than Neptune forgot in 25 centuries after watching the Argo sail overhead. That's a very complicated image because it suggests that Neptune, god of the sea, is underneath the water and is watching a ship move over him for the first time, which uh, must have been an interesting thing. Dante is also suggesting that he himself is doing something for the first time, which is obviously going to heaven, ascending there, and then coming back down. Another thing to look for is uh, conjunctions of parts and the holes during the course of this, um, this final lecture and uh, this final place. Everything is supposed to come together here. So let's see if it really does. All right, the river and the topazes, that's a sort of precious gemstone, which enter and fly out, and the smiling grass, how does grass smile, uh, are shadowy prefaces of their reality. So this is a very interesting sort of light stream. It calls to us the allegory of Plato's cave, where um, flames are used, uh, and puppets and sort of objects are put in front of the flames in order to cast shadows on the wall which people look at. These are shadowy semblances of reality. We have the same sort of language here, are shadowy prefaces of their reality. So apparently we're seeing some sort of reflection here. Perhaps this is itself an allegory for what reflection is. When you look inside your mind, at the images of objects rather than at objects themselves. Of course, you don't have actual stones in your head unless you are a blockhead. <laughs> in any case, not that they are themselves unripe things. The defect that there is, is in yourself, whose sight is not yet equal to such things. So the reason that Dante does not yet see things as they actually are, but only sees sad, shadowy preferences, is because he is himself imperfect in his ability to think, and so he must enlighten himself by taking this river of light into himself, obviously not through his mouth, that's not how light enters into you, but through his eyes. And so he drinks from the river of light. Uh, very similar to uh, drinking from Lethe and Unoe. Uh, they both change one's perspective and prepare one to enter heaven. Well, this will prepare him to see as one sees in heaven. Dante then perceives the river not as linear, but as circular. It's almost as if he has now seen time not simply as linear, but as circular. It's almost like he is seen as God would see, who could see past, present, and future all at once, whereas humans are bound by um, the linear progression of time. Uh, time passes. One. One o'clock. Then two o'clock. Then three o'clock. And yet our clocks do happen to be circular, which is very interesting. And we do, of course, a circle around uh, the sun, even though we are in an elliptical uh, orbit. In any case... Dante then sees the truth clearer than ever before as a unity and a plurality. Notice that part in the whole sort of theme that I talked about earlier. The heavenly host, which is called a host, a host is a word for an army, 
as well as you know, somebody that serves you dinner, but originally an army, uh, is divided into two, both the courts of heaven. Who are these courts of heaven? You will see, we will see a few different divisions at the top of heaven in the empire. There are those who came before Christ. Those are generally uh, Hebrew patriarchs. Um, and people like Rahab, who came before Christianity, and the elect who came after. I say here that Dante sees reflected the tears of the two armies of heaven. And if you look at this uh, beautiful image of heaven, you can see uh, that there's an image and a reflection of it. And uh, what the, the, the people seem to be holding there are um, large, tall shields, shields that seem to be reflective and reflecting each other. So very interesting. Uh, heaven is also here described in a very garden-like way as a golden, sempiternal Rose, a golden rose, and I used to have an image of that up here, but I just imagine a golden rose, and that is the idea here. That the layers all reflect upon each other like petals of a rose, which are so similar to each other. The Empyrean, how is it that we see it? Well, if you notice this image up here, you see a reflection of something which is real. The Empyrean is seen reflected from the top of the Prima Mobile. Like seeing a rainbow reflected off a prism. So the Empyrean is not directly seen itself. It is seen as a reflection, as if it is itself a, uh, a symbol of reflection. You can only see the ultimate, you can only ultimately reflect by reflecting, not simply by imagining. It might be something like what Dante is saying. Well, Dante looks up to see what he can see. And uh, then he sees the celestial city, which is also called the celestial rose. It's sometimes called city, sometimes called rose. There are two hosts or armies within it. They'll be described as many different things. Well, the souls and the angels are clothed in, clothed in white. They are pure and unmixed with matter, with the accidents of life removed. It seems like they are now pure story or essence, which remains pure soul, no body. And we see uh, amongst uh, these seats, those who come after Christ, some empty seats. There are many that are filled from those before Christ, because obviously that time has passed. But one of these seats has a crown above it, and that is received for a historical person who does not die until 1313. He is alive during the Divine Comedy, which takes place starting 1300. His name is King Henry VII, and Dante hoped uh, that this Holy Roman Empire, or Emperor, who also became the Roman Emperor, would, uh, would come to Florence and would expel the Black Wilds and would help to restore him to his home. And yet, unfortunately, on campaign, this man died earlier than expected from a, a seemingly unknown causes, which Dante thinks is very unfair, but with his death, died Dante's hopes of ever returning to Florence, even though he had had a couple of chances uh, before King Henry VII. In any case, uh, Dante contrasts King Henry VII, who died unjustly early, with a man who died justly early, who was a pope named Clement V, who was unfair, but will die early in office. Obviously, he's died before uh, Dante finishes writing the end of the Paradiso, but also after um, the events of the Paradiso take place, which is in 1300. The difference between 1321 and 1300. All right. I quote from 31. Canto 31, the first 12 lines. In the form, then, of a shining white rose, this is the Empire, the holy army of those whom, in his blood, Jesus, Christ made his spouse, made its appearance to me. But the other army which, as it flies, sees and sings the glory of him who fills them with his love and the goodness which made them as they are, like a swarm of bees landing <coughs> upon flowers at one moment and then at once returning to where its work is turned into sweetness, descended into that great flower, which is dressed in so many petals, and then rose up again to where their love lives 
notes from there. Note that the celestial rose, uh, or heaven is described as the celestial rose and the celestial city. It's described as all white, even though recently it was just called the golden semi-eternal rose. So gold and white, uh, sort of holy colors, uh, regal colors in terms of gold, uh, holy in terms of white, and purity. Two tiers, those who came before Christ, those who came after, and they are compared to a bee taking sustenance from a flower. Something to uh, mention about uh, that particular analogy is that a bee takes sustenance from a flower. Obviously, it takes uh, it helps to make it uh, sort of honey based on that, but also pollinates other flowers through through that. So they work in uh, mutual uh, help to each other. Which are, are they part of the same species? It's uh, sort of a funny, weird question. Are they part of the same animal? I guess you could ask, seeing as they are so necessary to the survival of both. In any case. Both, uh, all the souls in this heaven are swarming about each other, and at one point they are flowers, uh, uh, giving information to those who uh, come to see them like bees, and at other times they are bees going to flowers to receive from them. They are sharing information, they are sharing wisdom with each other, they are sharing something in common of great nourishment and value with each other. That seems to be what they do at the top of uh, heaven. Cool, they seem to be doing something. Alright, Dante's and Beatrice's Final moments in Canto 31, we only got her for about 30 uh, full cantos. We started seeing her, uh, we first saw her at the top of the Purgatorio after hearing about her so early on in the Inferno from Virgil. And yet now, we are going to lose her. So, Dante then perceives the Trinity. And he compares the feeling of him seeing the Trinity to the feeling of uh, German barbarians for the first time seeing the immense monuments of Rome. They're giant uh, buildings. They're, uh, they're uh, not their hanging gardens, but rather they're, uh, they're aqueducts. Uh, the structures, the apartments that they had. They had condominiums in Rome. They had bathrooms uh, outside, so not, not as nice as now the condominiums these days. In any case, uh, he feels a great sense of wonder at seeing the magnitude and the majesty of the divine mystery. He is first hit by the experience of it. He does not yet understand the experience of it. So it's like he sees it all at once. But he's going to have to parse that out. He's going to have to analyze what he sees. And as you know, analyze means to break a whole into parts so that you understand the parts better, so that you understand, of course, the whole better. In any case, this is the great unknown from which all information and wisdom is derived, in which all great patterns and stories of existence exist. Dante is refreshed immediately, attempts to commit to memory what he sees, but also fails to commit to memory all that he sees, just like so many of us with our memory. And he describes coming from the mortal to the divine realm. Well, he turns to see Beatrice. After taking in the hole and now wanting to focus on parts and poof, Beatrice is gone. I intended one thing, but what happened was different. 3158. And St. Bernard appears. He was a Cistercian monk from the 12th century and uh, was probably far more famous then than he is now because you probably haven't heard of him. You probably, when you hear St. Bernard, think of uh, a dog or a specific famous dog from a movie called uh, uh, Beethoven. In any case... He himself, in literary circles, represents something that we would call, say, the wise old man. Sort of like in uh, movies and comic books that you're probably more familiar with than this. Or uh, Dumbledore is a figure of the old wise man. Gandalf is obviously a figure of the old wise man. Professor Xavier from the X-Men, obviously a figure of the old wise man. Old, powerful man. You know, figure uh, 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 Theo. Or, excuse me, uh, Deo is what I should say. Good Latin. All right, in any case, this is Saint, this Dante and Bernard gazing upon the Trinity and Mary. First, we're going to look at Mary, then we have to pray to Mary that she reveals even more truth to Dante, and then only, and only then will Dante be able to look at the Trinity, and that's what we have 
left in front of us. So Dante demands to know, what happened to Beatrice? And Bernard responds to him, it was for your final satisfaction that Beatrice asked me to leave my place. So note that we have now had um, three guides. We've had Virgil through the Inferno and much of the Purgatorio. Uh, I would say uh, Asterisk, we also sort of had Stasius for a little bit of time in Purgatorio. We then met Beatrice and she brought us from Terrestrial Paradise up to Celestial Paradise and all the way to the final bit. And yet this Bernard is going to have to uh, help us for the last three cantos, of course. And something to mention here, he often gets short shrift in commentary. People think because he shows up so late in the game, he's less important than Beatrice or uh, Virgil. But that's not quite true. You have to understand what the Empyrean is. Since it is beyond the Prima Mobile, which is where the nature of the universe starts, therefore where space and time govern, we are now beyond where space and time governs, which means we do not know how much time Dante spends with Bernard or how much he learns from him. And so uh, uh, since there is no such thing as space or time in the Empyrean, Dante could be spending infinite amounts of time here. He could learn infinitely more from Bernard than he learns from Virgil or from Beatrice. And that's something uh, to keep in mind. In any case, Beatrice is now far away as far away as the top of the sky from the bottom of the sea, and yet she can still be perceived immediately. That term immediate means without medium. There is no such thing as space in the Empire. So even though Beatrice is now in the tears of heaven and seems to be far from Dante, he can see her just as clearly as if she were close to him, because again, there is no such thing as space. Without the things that uh, differentiate us and separate us in the world do not differentiate or separate these souls in heaven. So things are a little bit different up here. In any case, Dante then thanks Beatrice for taking him from slavery to liberty. We'll have to think about precisely uh, what that means, uh, given the final tercet of this text. And Dante's wisdom has now so sharpened his sight that he may now freely pursue his, uh, 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 his ideal. In any case, Bernard here noticed this nice Baroque image showing uh, contrast of light and dark. Bernard seems to be looking at some sort of light and then come writing that down in a text, almost like he is seeing the truth by thinking about the truth and then expressing the truth through words so that other people can have the truth communicated to them and have it within themselves. So a very heavenly sort of thing. In any case, Bernard then instructs Dante to look upon the so-called garden. These are the two tiers of, uh, of the uh, sympaternal rose of the celestial city of the empire. Continue your munificence to me so that my soul, which you have made whole, may please you when it is untied from my body, Dante says. Dante is now, uh, he has learned the arts from Beatrice, has freed his mind to where now he can create true art, and now he can pursue wisdom on his own. Uh, in any case, Dante long, longingly studies what he sees, like one who has made a long, long pilgrimage, and finally makes it to the object of his desire, very much like us, like Odysseus at home, studying his surroundings. He investigates what he sees. He does not assume that he understands what he sees. In front of him. And then Bernard, as I told you he would, directs Dante's eyes to the Queen of he Heaven in Latin, that is called the Regina Coeli, the Queen of Heaven in the Catholic tradition, is of course the Virgin Mary, who was assumed in the 20th century during Vatican II. And so, this Virgin Mary, um, her, uh, she has never been spoiled, and she was the mother of Jesus, and that's really all I want to say. There, this is an image of St. Bernard right next to Dante. You can see that B above, or S, B above St. Bernard, D above Dante. And they're looking at Mary, who is beneath the Trinity. You see a father, you see a son next to him, and you see uh, a dove between them. A dove, of course, is the uh, symbol of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love. So the dove, as Holy Spirit, seems to be something like the 
uh, love that is shared between two rational beings, which can only be shared between two rational beings. That's, uh, I think, a very strong interpretation of what the Holy Spirit is. In any case, Dante looks at the zenith. That means the highest point of this heaven. That's the highest truth. That means God, the Trinity. Like a sun at noon, it's very bright, very hard to understand. And uh, the same place where Phaeton, or Phaethon, diverted uh, from. Phaethon was the son of Apollo, who asked to uh, ride his chariot across the skies, even though nobody, even Zeus, Jupiter, was not capable, uh, or was capable of uh, harnessing those horses of, uh, of Apollo. In his attempt, he lost control, and uh, since he scorched the earth, and Gaia cried out in pain, Zeus fulminated him. And so, uh, uh, Dante better be careful. He's getting very close to the top of things. He better be careful. Also, like Icarus, who was, of course, a, the son of Daedalus, who flew up close to the sun on wings made of feather that were attached to his back by wax. He got too close to the sun. He did up too much. Wax melted. He fell to his death. So, Dante better be careful here. He then sees each angel. And something interesting philosophically about the angels is that they're each different but equally perfect. They're each distinct. They're each their own species. And so, unlike humans... <clears throat> or we're all one species, and what differentiates us is uh, a subject to argument. <clears throat> Quite a bit of argument, in fact. Um, but not so with the angels. They are each a different species. They are each unique in kind. And so what do we see uh, them and the souls in heaven doing? They're singing and playing games. They're doing something. So they're not just doing nothing. And they are not simply singing hosannas, as uh, Mark Twain uh, once said about heaven, uh, trying to disparage it, calling it boring. Obviously, he hadn't read his Dante quite as well as what we have. <laughs> Here's a nice image of Phaethon right here. In any case, Dante continues to observe the celestial court and starts to see some of the major historical personages of it. He sees Eve sitting at Mary's feet. Eve at Mary's feet because she is the foundation of Mary. She, uh, Eve, was the one who first created uh, original sin by eating uh, the apple. That was the original sin or the original breaking of the rules of mankind. And Mary supposedly solved it because what did she do? Well, she produced the person who would uh, then forgive all the sins of mankind. So Eve creates the problem. Mary helps to solve the problem is the idea. There's some parity there uh, between them. Hmm. In any case, we also see Rachel besides Beatrice. Recall that we had heard about Rachel. Rachel, all the way back in the first two cantos of the Inferno, there was Mary, who went to talk to Lucy, who came to talk to Rachel, or excuse, excuse me, who came to talk to Beatrice, who was sitting next to Rachel. We'll see them all up here now. So, Rachel is sitting besides Beatrice. We then get a lineage of several women who have opposite seats from men. So again, one of those divisions, parts and the whole. There are going to be some old uh, patriarchs, men, and some old matriarchs, ladies. And so, besides Rachel is Beatrice, uh, besides them are Sarah, Rebecca, Judith. These are major uh, Hebrew uh, matriarchs. Sarah was the wife of Abraham, and uh, 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 Judith was the great-great-grandmother of David. The, these are people who produced, produced great men who produced great traditions, almost as if the original art of woman was man, and the original art of man was an imitation of the birthing process of woman. I, I think that's probably correct as well. In any case, um, each part of this divine court, this celestial court, is uh, described as a petal of a great rose. And something to observe about that is that if you do look at a rose, many of the petals all look the same. Um, it's like the uniformity of it in conjunction with each other is what makes it beautiful. Perhaps also that is what makes good character, the uniformity of your actions in uh, search of a goal or in uh, uh, mm -hmm, uh, 
how do I even say, in a pursuit of, there we go, a goal, or um, uh, what makes a good character, or a beautiful life. In any case, mm, uh, nothing more there. Uh, here is a quick schematic of what the Celestial Rose looks like. We see Mary up at the top. We see Peter and Adam right next to her. We see John and Moses on the other sides of Adam and Peter. You can see Beatrice right next to Rachel. You see the people from the New Testament. Those are those who came after Christ. You see the Blessed of the Old Testament on the other side. Um, and you can see the center of the rose, too. You might want to imagine this as three-dimensional, too. Um, let's see. Yeah, very good, very good. And uh, you will have this image sent to you today. Here's an image of what the Trinity could have looked like, three interlocking circles, sort of like a super Venn diagram right there. You see Trinitas and Unitas. You see plurality there. You see singularity. It's all one object, and yet you can split it into three, and yet all three are uniform. And so, very weird. Now, Canto 32, the great men or producers of great traditions. Well, we have John the Evangelist. Remember the primacy of the Logos in the beginning was the Word. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of St. John, also Revelation at the end of the New Testament. Um, and uh, we also see St. Francis up here, who we had seen uh, described by, um, uh, anybody recall who described him? It's Aquinas, a Dominican, not a Franciscan. We see St. Benedict up here, who we actually uh, met amongst contemplatives. And we also see Augustine, who was himself a, uh, a, a he was a Franciscan, but uh, also an Augustinian, one of the major Catholic thinkers there, uh, of, of the two top ones. Bonaventure is up there, but Aquinas and Augustine are obviously the biggest ones. And uh, the Confessions of Augustine are something well worth reading in the story of Olympias. In any case, I'm going to keep moving from there. All right. Do I see? Ah, uh, yes, I, I did want this. Uh, we also see up here a correlate to what we saw down in uh, the first few cantos on the Inferno. When we first got into hell in Canto 3, we noticed that there were people who were wailing and crying, and we saw some neutral angels who were expelled from outside of hell, but then we went into hell, and in there we saw um, not only cowards, but we also saw children, uh, children who never, never got a choice, and apparently they were predestined to go to hell. Well, uh, the correlate, or the parallel to them, are the children who got to go to heaven without ever having understanding or making a choice or ever achieving free wills. So there are also, obviously, children in heaven who are babies, infants, who never made a choice. So there are also uh, predestined uh, heaven babies. <laughs> so, good for them. In any case, Bernard then directs Dante's eyes to the face of Mary. So we've been looking slowly up higher and higher and higher, going from the bottom of the celestial hierarchy to the top of the celestial hierarchy. And, require, and recall that once we get to the top of Mary's face and over her head, we will see the final vision. We will see the Trinity. In any case, he understands each life's connection to its own inner angel, or nature. And he sees still circling around the head of Mary, the archangel Gabriel. Recall that the archangel Gabriel is the angel that was sent down by God to uh, earth to tell Mary the so-called Annunciation, to announce to her the fact that she would be, as a virgin, parthenogenically giving birth to God. Very odd sort of thing. In any case, Dante then seems to understand the connection between Mary and Gabriel, almost as if like a spirit of consciousness entered into Mary and she had to have a child who would also embody that consciousness in order to uh, remove the same of original sin from the world. Hmm. In any case, let's now see the great patriarchs who are next to Mary. Uh, we see uh, Adam to her left, who was himself a sinner, thief, mistake maker. We see to her right, Peter, who is himself a sinner, betrayer, and violent mistake maker. He cut off the ear of a slave uh, when he was quite angry at one time. It's very interesting, too, because if, if you know the story of the death of Jesus, he was obviously crucified next to two thieves, um, one who went to heaven, one who went to hell. And so um, uh, it is interesting to see that uh, Mary is herself surrounded by two people that could be uh, 
can, <laughs> could be called sinners. Only Adam probably called a thief, though, because of that apple he wasn't supposed to eat. In any case, um, <clears throat> this seems to say something about human nature, that uh, even people in heaven, even patriarchs, make mistakes, but the human or divine thing to do is to recognize and then correct or forgive those mistakes. He who is without sin, cast first stone. That's what that means. And so, in any case, we also see some other people. John, the, uh, the, the, who I, I had already mentioned, the evangelist, who is the writer of Revelation, as well as uh, the Gospel of John. You see Moses, a layer down of laws. He's the one who brought the, uh, the Ten Commandments down from the mountain. Uh, we see Anna, then, too. So, uh, you may not know where that name comes from. Anna, obviously, the sister of Dido, but even before that. Um, uh, Anna, or excuse me, I guess slightly after that. Anna was the mother of Mary. Recall that the Aeneid was written, of course, before the New Testament, about 100 years. Um, uh, yeah, about 100 years exactly. 31, 70, yeah. She sits opposite Peter. We also see Lucy, who we'd seen mentioned in the first couple cantos of the Inferno, so good memory, Dante. And uh, these people seem to be producers of new creations, whether they be people or traditions. In any case, Bernard directs Dante now to pray to Mary to open his eyes wider so that he can see the primal love that is God. Uh, to pray seems here to mean to articulate one's desires, hopes, in order to begin to produce a plan, and in articulating that goal, one's thought uh, is then naturally summoned to help one determine a plan to achieve it. So what prayer truly seems to be here for Dante is articulating a goal in order to begin on the path to achieving it. And that's what it means to have a prayer, as it were, to have a goal and to direct yourself towards it. Uh, your intellect is what gets you towards your goals. It's not uh, just some magic. In any case... Bernard prays harder for Dante to achieve his goal than for his own. This is an act of charity. He wants Dante to see more so that the world can be given what Dante sees. It will do him no good because Bernard's obviously at the top of heaven right now. He's having a good time. And so we see a paradox which begins um, Canto 33. Virgin mother. Very much paradox. Hard to be a virgin and a mom at the same time. Daughter of your son. Uh, very hard to be the daughter of your son. Seeing as you're the mother of your son. And humble yet exalted. Hard to be proud and humble all at once, and yet this is the language of paradox. This is the language which Dante must speak in order to understand the final paradox, the final questions of this uh, deepest and highest uh, contemporary realm. And so, is there something else I want to say? So the clouds of mortality then fall away from Dante, and he looks up to the Godhead, the Trinity, the Divine, freely and without guidance. Sight further clarifies, Beatrice would become more beautiful here, but he's not looking at her, he's looking at God. Language now fails to represent pure being as purely conceived by contemplation, but Dante will try. Uh, lines uh, 55 to 57 in Canto 33, again, that ineffability topos. I cannot tell you all that I saw because language fails me. Hmm. And he describes himself even as one expressing the feeling of a dream after having it. You still have the feeling from the dream, but you can't recount all the details. That's how he is after this vision. In any case, what does the Trinity look like? Dante sees it. There are three volumes. In fact, they are three circles bound by love. So there seem to be two top circles and one bottom circle that connects them all, just like that image of Trinitas and Unitas I showed you earlier. And that, uh, that binding circle is the Holy Spirit. And here all the leaves scattered through the universe are gathered. All the souls here seem to be connected in some way. Connected not by something material, because obviously we're beyond the material realm, but connected by a spirit of charity. Well, Dante continues to observe and be shaped by what he sees, to become better able to articulate. It was my sight, which was growing stronger as I was looking. So, 
what looked like one worked on me as I myself changed. And something beautiful here to consider for yourselves is, does the world become more beautiful the more you learn about it? Does this text become more beautiful? As you are changed by witnessing something, does it change in your very perception? And so uh, what Dante is essentially here saying is that the less beauty you see in this moment, the, the less you have seen all around, the less you have been shaped by this. The farther you have kept yourself from the fire, the less hot you've become, the less you've transformed. And, well, if that happens to be history, that's very unfortunate. In any case, here is an image of the three uh, circles. Notice that they're different colors. Notice that there is an effigy, that means a form, of man in one. That's obviously the sun, the one that becomes Jesus. Hmm. Very interesting here. Very weird. It's like three circles. Seems like sort of a letdown, if you really don't think about it. <laughs> in any case, the three circles. Let's, uh, let's understand this trinity. Sun. They are equal in circumference. That means they're all the same size. They are uh, the same form. They're obviously all circles, but they are different colors. You can check 33, 115, and 117. The first circle is called the Father, God the Father. The second, uh, or it is reflected by the second, meaning that uh, it looks the exact same, except for it's a different color, 118 to 119, as rainbow by rainbow. So like a double rainbow, one reflecting the other. And uh, equally true. What it, uh, which is more real, uh, the reflection of a truth or a truth? It's like, uh, e equally real, uh, ontologically speaking. In any case, the third circle, like a flame, is breathed from the first two and connects both in a relationship of mutual exchange. So apparently this Holy Spirit third circle connects the first two together, and they're sort of like a spinning wheel that uh, goes on eternally. And yet recall that uh, this is the unmoved mover, and so they aren't moving very much. Here's the description from 33, 118 to 120. And the first, that's the Father, seemed to be reflected by the second as a rainbow by a rainbow. And the third, the Holy Spirit, seemed like a flame breathed equally from both. O eternal light, 124 to 126, existing in yourself alone, alone knowing yourself, and who known to yourself, and knowing, love and smile upon yourself. If you notice nothing else about that, expression. You will notice the use of the verb to know several times. Knowing yourself. Known to yourself. And knowing. Oh, yeah, very interesting. Uh, that Again, a trip in triplicate, a triple repetition there. Knowing itself. This is not a Christian formulation, by the way. Even at the top of heaven, Dante is referencing pagans. Which pagan is he referencing here? Well, the unmoved mover. Because what is it that the unmoved mover uh, sees or knows about the universe? It knows itself and nothing else. It is itself um, self-focused. It is solipsistic, and that is also true for Dante's God up here, which is, uh, which of course would be uh, a slightly heretical way of looking at things. In any case, alone knowing yourself, and who known to yourself, and knowing love and smile upon not us, but yourself. Again, very solipsistic, uh, reflexive sounding even. Uh, 130 to 132. Within itself, and in its own color, seemed to be painted with our effigy. So this is the second circle. And so absorbed my attention altogether. And so what he tries to see now, a uh, very famous uh, ancient Greek uh, uh, issue was how to square the circle. And obviously you can't square a circle because a circle is a circle. And you can't, take a, can't make it into a square. But ancient uh, ge ge geometers uh, believed that the square represented what a human is. Sort of finite, corners, all that. Whereas a circle represented either the soul or God, something immortal. And so uh, the question now being considered by Dante is how could a God become man? How could the circle fit within the confines of this square? How do these things fit together? He tries rationally to put it together, but he can't. Because 
uh, it's an irrational sort of truth. Some truths, apparently, according to Dante here, happen to be irrational. You can't learn them through reason. You have to learn them through some sort of uh, uh, epiphany, some sort of intuition. It's called, in uh, theological language, revelation. And so, 133 to 135, my desire and my will, I guess I'll, I'll move it here. These, uh, I'm sorry, 143 to 145, my desire and my will. Those are, remember, two parts of the soul for Dante. There's the appetitive part of the soul as well as the thematic or spirited part of the soul. We're being turned like a wheel, all at one speed, by the love which moves the sun and other stars. And you notice that word stars again ends this canticle just as it ends each canticle. Dante, now like a star in the Aristotelian and Ptolemaic cosmology, may move by divine art in order to inscribe himself and his art eternally amongst the heavens. His desire and his willpower have become one. He now desires what he actually intellectually wants, rather than simply what the body tells him to want. So, whereas you, say, are uh, simply moved by your desires, have a very difficult time actually setting a plan intellectually and sticking with it with your willpower because your desire <coughs> fights against your intellect, he is made one. The idea behind this very text is that if you read it closely, if you embody its lessons, it will free your mind from your base desires and free your willpower from them in order to serve your mind. The purpose of this text is to free you to pursue the things that you want in life. And so probably it will take several more readings of you in order actually to do that. But um, that is the claim of this text, and that was the Divine Comedy.